everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Um, Wayne again. We had an amazing webinar on Friday. Actually, another one earlier in the week, and we are so excited because we have got Philip Taylor here with us today from Mad Agriculture, which I just love. I, every time I see it, I keep thinking of, of uh, it's a mad, mad, mad world or mad magazine, which you're not old enough to at all remember, but maybe you've heard of it. I remember Mad. I remember Mad. <laughs> And uh, anyway, it's just cool. Is it an acronym or is it, give, give me a little bit of that history. Yeah. Um, Mad Agriculture was inspired by a set of poems that uh, one of kind of the U.S. great agrarians, Wendell Berry, wrote uh, in the wow. 70s and 80s called the Mad Farmer Poems. And uh, these poems kind of, they call us, they call humanity. Um, you know, to to live um, with a set of virtues and principles that I think we all long to see in the world, love, reciprocity, stewardship, a sense of place, you know, indigenous wisdom. And um, yeah, those poems have uh, have spoken to me more than once in the arc of my life. And uh, when I was leaving academia, which maybe we'll get into later, um, you know, the, I came back to my roots and those poems, and that was the inspiration for Mad Agriculture. Cool. Yeah, I do remember um, some of Barry's, and you're right. That's very cool. Um, lots of, uh, lots of. Um, uh, by the way, everybody, uh, Reed and Mark are going to scroll around on various sites that, that uh, Philip has given us to show about him. And we're going to do an interview format. It's going to be fairly um, um, loose and no specific guidelines to it. Um, if you guys have questions, and please ask some, um, put them in kind of as they come up. And Mark and Areeb will be specifically looking for them. Philip and I will just be able to concentrate on our talking together and uh, maybe looking at the screen and seeing what's up there. And, and that can, that can get some thoughts into both of our minds as we talk with each other. And then, um, and then if you've got questions, we'll try, try to answer them as we're moving along through. We'll keep this about an hour. And again, at the end, if there's more questions than, than will you know, be met in, the, in an hour, I'm sure Philip will stay on a little bit with us, but we were very respectful of all of our guests' time. And so try to get your questions in before that. But and there's no bad question. Everything you might ask could be good. So we appreciate that. So um, we we kind of started this way, but why don't you give us about five to seven minutes, whatever you'd like, kind of of a life history. So go back to childhood, just sort of yep. you know briefly bring us up to the day, and then we'll we'll dive into some of the things that, that we talk about. Yeah, great. Um... Yeah, I, I, I love that question. I think our, our lineages, our story, where we come from matters just a huge degree 
to how we see the world um, and either consciously or unconsciously act in the world. And, you know, a lot of that, uh, the life story is as much about learning as it is unlearning. And so I've done a lot of that in my life. And uh, my story uh, begins in growing up um, on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, um, the eastern, uh, you know, the eastern shore of Maryland and uh, the east coast of the U.S. Um, my uh, family was, uh, we lived in a farming community. Uh, it was a rural part um, between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And, and Philadelphia. And my grandfather and my grandmother uh, were a doctor and nurse who delivered, you know, thousands of farm babies and we're just highly dedicated to, you know, so service to humanity and the earth and uh, really, really wonderful upbringing. Uh, my parents um, also uh, just really invested in their local community, also in medicine. Um, you know, I grew up kind of romping around the, the forest lands between all the farm fields. And then I worked as a farmhand off and on, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, growing up. Um, I grew up uh, conservative Christian, uh, pretty fundamentalist, and have since left all of that or expanded beyond it. Um, but it really gave me a, a deep sense of the the sort of the left and the right um, pieces of our political spectrum here in the in the U.S. And um, we can come back to that piece of my story because it's significant, I think, in the way that we work. Um, but you know, I thought I was going to go to college and follow my my um, grandfather, my dad's footsteps, um, went to Eastern University. You know, college for me was just uh, and a wonderful kind of existential explosion of my consciousness, of my heart, my soul, my mind. Met some really wonderful professors and people. Um, grew an enormous amount um, and decided to follow what I really wanted to do, which was to live in service of, of the earth and, and the ecosystems and the animals and the land that have been so severely degraded um, and and hurt through, you know, I think one of the major paradigms of, of our age, which is the extractive colonial paradigm that I, I still find myself unwinding out of every day of my life. Um, and so uh, I, I went to college, um, I got a master's degree after a very brief stand of working in uh, Malawi, Africa, doing some agriculture oriented work um, which was a big shift for me, um, working internationally and um, really trying to do my best, you know, come up with the best intention, but realizing that I was part of a, a sort of a global system of, of um, agricultural relief that wasn't tilting the world in the right direction. I was helping, you know, provide access to free fertilizer and seed. And, and that was really, um, while I thought it was a good thing, um, it was actually just um, inviting locals to join these global commodity markets. And that was the first real big experience sort of coming out of college that I was trying to do something good with my life, but realized that I was actually creating more harm um, in the way that I was working there. And, and just felt increasingly frustrated with my sort of inability and lack of maturity to know how to operate in the world and complex systems where you know, justice and injustice can be seen or not seen. And and um, you really use that period to say, I'm going back to college. I want to create, I want to join a container where I can grow and become, you know, sort of mature my critical thinking skills, um, develop as a human. 
and uh, got my master's at Virginia Tech in stream ecology. Went from there to um, do my PhD um, at CU Boulder in global biogeochemistry and ecology and traveled all over the world studying ecosystems, mainly rainforests, studying the carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus cycles. Um, during this time, I uh, met a lovely woman, my wife, Nicole, and we've had now have four kids. Um, and so raising a family while doing all of this growth and adventuring. And uh, I, after CU Boulder, um, I worked briefly at Duke and Stanford on several different projects and really, really awesome colleagues, tremendous time in my life, but um, was increasingly frustrated with the lack of ability to put my ideas into action. Um, the currency of academia is, is publishing um, papers, which are certainly a starting point, but unless those ideas take root and find find energy on the ground and, and transform lives in the land, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, you wonder what the meaning of them is. And so I became a little frustrated with academia um, and through a series of sort of different iterations, finally pulled eject. Um, and three, four years ago, really um, had a real inward time of my life, um, really doing a lot of soul searching, um, trying to figure out, um, you know, after 35 years of, you know, putting my heart and my soul into into, into the world and the work, what, what was next? And, and so at that time, I went back to sort of some foundational works that had shaped me early on in life, um, including Wendell Berry's um, Unsettling of America and his Mad Farmer poems. And uh, that, that was really the kernel that um, kind of gave birth to, to Mad Agriculture, um, you know, that, that is uh, as it stands right now and, and continues to evolve. So that's my, my life story in, in a few minutes. Um, lots of interesting things I've learned along the way. Um, and just incredible people and an incredible earth that we live on and to see its its beauty and, and the tragedy and and the full expression of, of, of its ecosystems um, has been really joyous and and um, I feel like that's what really you know the, the mission of mad AG in so many ways is you know how do we how do we heal our relationship to ourselves how do we heal our relationship to the earth and to other people that have been oppressed and traumatized um, in sort of the conquest of civilization. And we certainly have a lot to celebrate, um, um, humanity does, and we certainly have a lot to, to reimagine and restore. Very cool. By the way, we have, we have a lot more sort of in common than either one of us would probably ever, ever think of, not only being almost neighbors, um, but, um, I, uh, I grew up on the West Coast, so sort of the opposite ends of the planet. Did not grow up with a, with a, um, I'll just call it, you know, um, human health or people helping family, although an amazing family. Uh, my dad was an aerospace engineer, actually a, a test pilot. Uh, he came out of World War II and uh, flew uh, C-47 transport planes in World War II and then Came back and went to work for a company called North American who flew fighters. Um, and I lived in an amazing place where um, Chuck Yeager lived down the street. He was a friend of my dad. Um, at one point, Neil Armstrong lived literally right behind me. 
<laughs> story that I've, I've told is that another family moved in next door to Armstrong. And all I knew was that there was a, a great amount of music that came out of this place. My parents mm. complained about it. And then the guy that was making the music, who seemed like he was about 10 years older than me, I was eight or nine at that point, um, would throw dog crap into my backyard and I would do the same back to him. And I found out <laughs> many years later that that was Frank Zappa. And uh, Frank Zappa <laughs> lived next door to Neil Armstrong for, for about a year or something like that. But I that got introduced in two ways to agriculture during that time. One piece of this I've never told the rest of our group here before. By the way, I'm going to get off of this in a second, but was my mother's side of my family um, homesteaded from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma mm. in the 1909 land rush. So my mother was born in 1916, but, but her sister, one of her sisters was born on the wagon train coming from, from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma. My mother wow. grew up on the farm, did not have running water, electricity, until she was in high school. And it was during that time that the recession or the depression started. And she didn't even know what was going on. She didn't even realize mm -hmm. that there was a depression because life never changed. And, yep. and my dad grew up in Chicago and was hugely impacted by the depression and it had a major impact on him. So it's interesting to hear their story. But anyway, bottom line, taking it a lot further, my cousins still live on those homesteaded farms in wow. Oklahoma, near Enid, Oklahoma. And wow. I was able to spend time with them in my young, you know, eight years to 15 year old time frame and saw them go from community farming to industrial farming. It was during yeah. that time frame that that occurred. And <clears throat> now they're sons are running those farms and, and most of them have left but they're and they've still kept them in the family but it's all industrial ag all something i think both you and i would not think real favorably of and yep. i've seen that happen and i haven't stayed as close to my cousins as i really would like and, and it's not because i well i don't agree with the way they're farming and we don't have any personality issues really but honestly you sort of aren't attracted to something that you don't like being around. So I haven't said Absolutely. But then when I grew up in this Lancaster north of LA, it was called the alfalfa capital of the United States. And <laughs> I was growing up in the city, a town, it really wasn't a city, but literally right behind my house was vacant land that or at the end of the street that was desert. And then beyond that desert was center pivots and flood irrigated alfalfa all artificial in the middle of the desert that shouldn't have been there. I mean, saw yep. the worst kind of agriculture uh, occurring, um, huge uh, pesticide, herbicide use, huge amounts of, of ammonia. And yep. my friend's parents laughing when I got into my early teens, when I asked, are you going to, you know, your son's going to inherit these farms? And they said, there won't be farms here by the time our sons are ready to inherit them. This will be wow. desert again. And that was true. And what was over 20 million acres 
you did a Google Earth today, you'd see maybe one or two center pivots in the whole area. And the rest, fortunately, has been resilient and has recovered, but it took 30 years for it to recover from that. My goodness. It was just terrible. Anyway, that was the beginning of what changed my whole course. I have a a master's and a PhD in aquatic ecology, Mm. and specifically PhD work up in Idaho with an amazing mentor. And a lot of my work was on big streams, so river ecology. Who did you work with? Run of the river reservoirs. Actually, the Snake River system, which had been dammed up, unfortunately now it looks like they might be taking those dams off, out and possibly. And I did work on on the benthic ecology, the bottom organism. But I was in academia, a little bit like you, went right into academia. And also just it wasn't right I, and and just didn't want to be there and ended up leaving that long story there but um and i've lived rurally though for over 40 years so that you know after i got out of college really at my undergraduate which was at uc irvine um mm. that was my last real time at any place urban um, I moved to Moscow, Idaho, which is very rural, lived on seven mm-hmm. acres, um, about 15 miles from the college, off the grid in a little, in a little shack with my wife and baby. I have four mm-hmm. kids. Um, wow. And again, yeah, we're, we're similarities there. Uh, yeah. what else? There was one other thing that hit that was, that was real. Oh, um, grew up not fundamentalist Christian, but Mm-hmm. Um, denominational, maybe even a little bit the opposite way, to where mm-hmm. it was just going to church, no other fellowship or community with the people involved. My parents went Sunday after yeah. Sunday after Sunday. I went to a private school for my first two years, um, first grade and second grade, which actually mm-hmm. got combined because I was bored by it all. And then after that, to public school. and Similar sort of circumstance. We'll have a lot to talk about that probably off air, but um, anyway. But we'll talk a little bit of it here. I want to get your your thoughts because you even asked about it. But we'll we'll share some of that later. And I live on an amazing sort of sustainable regenerative farm circumstance now, and have for 14, 15 years now here in northern Colorado. So. Awesome. Anyway, very cool. And we, and we can't be everybody. We are not more than 20 miles driving apart. Probably only 10. Well, in car, you're on the south side. We're probably 20 actually point to point and 35, 40 minutes uh, driving. Yep. So, yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. Very so cool. let's, um, let's go to the, just because I, it was laid in it, let's go to the, to the spirituality side. And by the way, I love, I can't read it all, but you've got something really cool behind you in the window um, that it says M. Oh, yeah, this is our logo. Mad. Okay, Mad Ag. All right. Got it. Going out. <laughs> Real cool. Um, yeah. And um, so tell us, tell us about that spiritual journey that you've been on. Hmm. Man, so good. I, uh, I, 
as I was saying, I grew up fundamentalist, uh, conservative Christian, and um, really enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. The tightness of the community, the sense of uh, camaraderie, uh, the sense of living for something beyond myself, something larger. And, you know, in that version was, you know, eternal life. And, and you know, it, you know, one of the convenient things about conservative religions is that it, it uh, takes a lot of the uncertainty of life out of the equation. So, you're no longer asking the big questions anymore, like, is there a God? Why am I here? What is my meaning? You know, all those things are sort of answered. They're baked into, into the structure, into, the, into what's been um, developed. And so, you know, when you, when you live life without that uncertainty, it really, you can feel empowered to sort of go for it, you know? And I think that's the sort of like missions-oriented nature of like the evangelical, you know, of, of conversion and proselytizing um, comes from a place that is usually really well-intentioned of like, wow, we, we have found it and the rest of the world needs to know the good news. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up believing that for, for a long time and it came with a lot of judgment. You know, I, I looked at people and other religions or people that didn't believe in religion and, 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 did hold a lot of judgment. And uh, as I got to college, um, I started meeting um, folks when I was in Philadelphia that were just wonderful, good people and not conservative Christians. And so it really, my experience, the thing that I, that I, um, that grew up with was the base, the basis of all kind of fundamentalism is that, you know, if, if everyone in the world believed what I believed, the world be, would be a better place. And um, I think most people actually think that that's true. Um, that's the kernel, though, of fundamentalism in my mind, and it creates an enormous amount of conflict. And so rather than truly leaning into the power of diversity and honoring um, freedom of religion, the freedom of, re of worship, the freedom of different beliefs, and that expression is a much, much harder reality um, to no negotiate those differences and oftentimes live with them. And when I got to college, I was, I found myself um, in just, you know, many, 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 many days and nights of, of you know, armchair philosophy, talking with people that were unlike me, um, unlike me in so many ways from a demographic, an age, a religious, um, a sex or any profile. And I was like, my goodness, this is, it challenged my belief my very fundamental belief that I had special insight into truth and that I knew how the world worked. And once that started to erode, it really, really eroded. Um, I used to basically, when I was in, I don't know, early 20s, host these large gatherings called Gathering for Dialogue. I would, I would assign like 100 pages of reading. Um, and, and then I would have Muslims and atheists and Quakers and conservative Christians and agnostics and Taoists and transcendentalists all um, pack into my apartment in Philadelphia. And then we would just philosophically kind of duke it out, um, you know, until two, three, four in the morning. And then we would do this once every two weeks. And during that time period, um, all the religious upbringing that I had had sort of unraveled um, into a big sort of sea of uncertainty and unknown. And, um, you know, my, the salve for me at the time was analytical thinking and rationality 
and science. And I really leaned heavy into science as a way of knowing truth and ascertaining the way the world worked. And, um, you know, spent the better part of 15 years in academia pursuing that. However, um, during that period, I also somewhat unknowingly, and, and my, my wife actually kind of knew the whole time, um, I was definitely losing some of my, my moorings around, you know, so the, the, the stuff that happens outside of what you can measure. Um, you know, I was a rainforest ecologist for, well, I guess I still am technically, um, but I spent a lot of time in the rainforest and um, Alexander von Humboldt, the great kind of science adventurer, said it really well. He said, you know, the thing that keeps me coming back to the rainforest is something that I can never measure. And um, when I read that years later in the heart of kind of my postdoc at Stanford, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm, I've been feeding and nurturing one part of my being, but not the other parts of my being. And so the last several years, um, I've been taking a pretty wonderful plunge into, into story and mythology. And my wife has been playing in that terrain for a long time in sort of the Jungian psychology and and uh, yeah, that's been sort of where I've been evolving my spiritual um, learnings over the last four or five years. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been lovely and beautiful and difficult. And you know, there's a there's a <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's really I could, it's really about the journey, as cliche as it is. You know, it's it is really about not necessarily arriving and knowing something, but about enjoying the questions. You know, Rainier Marie Rilke, the German poet you know, um, has a great quote that I'm going to paraphrase, which is says, you know, the challenge of life is, is, is not to find the answer. The challenge of life is to live the questions in hopes that one day in the living, you will find the answer. And, um, and so I think that that's really where I am in my journey. And um, it creates a very more, I, I'd say, expansive and open um, approach to things that tries to receive as much as possible um, without being judgmental and yet living confidently um, from a place of, of, I think, gratitude and, um, I don't know, uh, um, a longing and striving for a communal well-being. I think that's sort of my North Star. Um, cool. That's it. Awesome. Well, we will definitely just have some fun discussions about our, our our beliefs here and our views and, and our in our journey because it really is life is a journey um and yep. sometime in the future quickly tell us a little bit more because you've mentioned your wife and then your kids yeah um how, how old are your kids and what are they up to and so yeah on. so i have yeah four kids uh three boys and girl um thatcher is 15 hudson's 13 ada is 11 and then shepherd is six and oh, uh wow. they're you know, yeah. You are right in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right in the middle of it. Definitely it's thick and fun and you know, we uh <clears throat> Yeah, I mean parenthood is is the largest mirror you can hold up to yourself and and it's been just an, an accelerator of my growth and um yeah, they're all really happy healthy kids. Um very conscious of the way the world is moving and grooving and um, yeah, really proud of them. And, and, uh, you know, COVID has been weird and zoom schools and, you know, online communities and it's tested my patients and, and theirs as well. 
um, just for the amount of time that we live in the digital sphere. Um, but I've been pleasantly surprised with, with uh, yeah, how well they're doing despite all, despite all things. Awesome. Um, I see several questions here, and all of them are great questions. We're going to get to them. I just want to just unpeel a little bit more of, uh, of, of Philip's life and business here now. Um, so my kids are all grown and have seven grandkids, but it, it's still, yeah, you have an, a cool journey ahead. And there's going to be challenges. And I have the opposite. I have three girls and a boy. <laughs> so, mm. um, and the boy's the oldest. So we're best friends and, and, you know, have been for a, a long time. And, uh, and that's cool. All of them were local until about the last four years where, now they've moved around a little bit. You have that to look forward to down the road for you. Yeah. Um, tell us, if, now let's go into mad agriculture a little bit. Yeah. How um, it looks like you do a lot of consulting. Um, I see, saw that on pages. So is it, yeah. and I see, I see grain farming here. I see, uh, yeah. I don't see much rainforest such. So it, it looks like you're doing stuff um, domestically. So tell us about a little more about your business now. What, what does mad agriculture do? Yeah, I mean, we we are really in service of um, of helping farmers develop regenerative uh, farming operations, and helping in, helping those farmers find the power and the spirit, the inspiration, and the resources to put those regenerative farm ideals and visions into action. Um, we have a, a sort of a three-step process in working with farmers. We tend to work with farmers that are that are, are hungry to change and ready to go for it. We like working with leaders that are that are, are putting skin in the game and, and going for it. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a push model versus a pull. We don't like dragging people into the new reality. It's more, how do we support the leaders and, and, and help them find traction and legs in life? Um, and so we uh, work with farmers and um, after a pretty quick um, so, you know, that sort of trust building zone of going, okay, what are, what are our shared values? What are our shared visions? Um, we go from that, that space of kind of equal footing into a co-creative mode of asking, you know, what does their farm need um, in order to find its best next step forward? Um, and we, we bring a couple different frameworks into play from holistic management and, and some of Alan Savory's work and Holistic Management International. We also bring in another framework called the scale of permanence. And for us, frameworks are ways to, to sort of guide the, um, the uncovering of the potential of the farm and the farmer. You know, a real big piece of how we work is, is trying very hard not to tell anyone what to do. Um, it's actually about illuminating what is possible within the individual. So it's a, it's a theory of change, which... I think at its core is it lies in the belief that you know the the, the potential to transform the world um, lies within the unrealized potential of every human, um, and so we're very careful about I think just creating the container in which um, the the farmer and the farm family can can find that kind of vision in life, and we can provide that kind of container and boundaries for discussions around what you know what about their ecosystem is kind of poised for action versus versus not. And so um, what the scale of permanence is one framework that I mentioned 
helps us do is it helps us slow down and look at the dimensionality of the farm ecosystem. Looking at the things that the farmer can't change like climate to the things they can change like soil health. And we look at the multiple dimensions of a farm, looking at where there are strengths and weaknesses. And then we say, what will the, the what is the this family of decision makers, what is the resource base allow for movement in those zones? And so um, that kind of design process ends up being quite a bit of fun and it can take a matter of an hour or two. And then on some more complica complicated projects it can take, you know, a year. Um, and then after we do that design process with farmers, um, we have what we consider kind of three main relationships um, between the farm and the world at large that really have to come into play for that farm to find, um, you know, to be activated, so to speak. And those three relationships are who is the farmer and the farm's community of change or community of practice. Um, you know, who you surround yourself with is who you become. And so how you nurture your imagination and, and you know, your, your um, knowledge is really, really important so that and who you share your life's experience with is a big deal. Um, and so that kind of community of practice is one that we work on kind of nurturing for farmers. The second is, um, is where does money come from? Um, many, many farmers have an annual operating note at the least from a bank. And so we work on new, new types and forms of financing for farmers that want to transition to regenerative and organic systems. Um, and then the last relationship is what is the relationship between your farm and your market? Um, we work very hard to decommodify um, the crops and the, the products that our farmers um, you know, spend their life and their blood, sweat and tears growing and working with to steward the land and sell and make money. Um, and so that's kind of the full system that Mad Ag um, works with. Um, it, that, that structure I walked you through of like farm vision to the farm plan to the relationship between community, capital and markets is, is a framework that really structures our team and our programs. And it also structures the way that we work with farmers to really activate their, their version and vision for regenerative ag. Awesome. Obviously, we can go into a lot more detail. A lot of those. That, that's a good lead into a question that, that I'm going to say it's either Dina or Dinah. I apologize if I stated it wrong, but I'm going to go to your question here. Um, you actually have a couple of them, but let's catch the first one. Um, Dina says, I am following Regen Ag. And obviously, that is a, that's a formal entity, Regen Ag, and a, and a philosophy. Values, pilot projects, adoption by the USDA state governments, communities. I want to learn how Regen Ag differs from, excuse me, defines appropriate intermediate technologies. How do, how to de-incentivize farm consolidation? What are the criteria for Regen content? So a lot of a comment there, and then the last is the question. What are criteria for Regen content? Oof, man, that is a tough one. Great question. Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on this. Um, it's usually context dependent a bit. You know, for me, a regenerative action is anything that restores relationship, whether it's with yourself or with others or the land. 
And so I tend to take a pretty broad um, definition of regenerative um, because I think it, it does have the power to welcome all and be available to all. Um, and so for me, the, the on-ramp into a new paradigm needs to be really long and extend so that folks, no matter where are they on their journey, can feel the opportunity and ability to take steps uh, toward that very basic and important step of doing the right thing. Um, at the same time, um, you know, in the world of marketing and greenwashing and all of that, you know, it, it becomes more challenging if you're saying I'm regenerative and they're not, and you're drawing a line in the sand um, because you need to in order to find market value or because you're doing things that other folks aren't doing. I think this is where it gets more tricky. Um, and we're seeing just an enormous amount of debate about what that means. And, you know, when it comes to certifications and kind of standards, um, we are most closely allied with um, the real organic movement as well as the regenerative organic certification that sort of stacks on as an additional to the USDA organic. I mean, again, certifications and standards have plenty of issues to talk about and debate about. But at the end of the day, um, we sort of take those concerns in stride and, and commit to at least, at least the, the regenerative organic certification is the one that we tend to promote the most. Um, and uh, because we need to have a standard or a certification in order to build at least some semblance of transparency and trust between the consumer and, and the, the supply system that it was sourced from. So, you know, I think that, um, I do think that there are, you know, folks that are doing regenerative work and still using chemicals, but we tend, we tend, um, you know, to let them sort of define it as they want um, and not get too much in the thick of sort of carving out, this is good, this is bad, you know, and, and, and doing that. It's just, it gets, it's too much in the weeds um, I'd rather create a movement where everyone can participate and then use those standards, um, you know, when, when and where appropriate. Here's an interesting one. I'm going to ask mine first, and then, Dina, you've got a great second half to your question that I'm going to ask right after Philip addresses the, what I'm going to ask. Um, and this is on the market side. Um, and obviously, everybody, if, if Marie went back to the, to the slide he had up where it showed um, some big a terminal kind of location I mean, that yeah. that really is the outcome and where a lot of product goes to market um, in the typical industrial um, ag side and i spent a good portion of the middle part of my or the early part of my business life in minnesota and south dakota and um, i was i was doing restorative regenerative type farming but most of my neighbors and friends and whatever were real typical um, non-regenerative type farmers and the area they were the most steeped in the, the most tied to was marketing which and really the reality is there wasn't any the standard yeah. answer was why do you just take your grain down to the elevator yeah well that's what my granddad did that's what my dad did why yeah. wouldn't they do the same thing and mm -hmm. well maybe you could make more money doing something else. <laughs> you could 
think about it anyway. But yeah, I'm a farmer, yeah, totally not a marketer. So, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, that's what if you go back to that, actually, if you go back to that infrastructure, Reed, that's actually Grain Place Foods in uh, Marquette, Nebraska. And it's probably one of the most exciting places where folks, this is not a grain elevator. I mean, it is a grain elevator in the sense that there's an elevator there that moves grain, but it doesn't operate by the pricing systems of commodities um, in the Chicago Board of Trade. This is um, an important intermediary between staple crop farmers and brands that um that want to buy food at premiums pay fair value for farmers that are also doing well by the land and so this guy dave vetter who built out grain place foods in marquette nebraska has become a very very important it's almost like an hourglass like the the, the skinniest point of an hourglass where you have all these you know consumers up here wanting values aligned food like wheat and you know edible dry beans and and lentils and gluten-free flour or whatever it might be and then you have all these farmers who have no idea how to access that market and grain place foods has been one of the most important conduits in the middle of the country to really bring that kind of supply shed together and then give it back out to a lot of these kind of value value aligned um, food brands but you're you're totally right i mean Every farmer we work with is sells to the elevator, um, and it's largely not because they won't grow something else. It's that they, they, um, I think, are isolated and so remote from other market opportunities that they're they're very challenging to even think about how to create. Um, you know, farmers are often good at farming; they're not good at being evangelical, so to speak, for their for their crops. Um, when you live in South Dakota. Um, it's hard to drive to Chicago to figure out where to move a couple semis of beans, right? And so it's uh, it gets really challenging. That's that's actually what we work on a lot for our farmers or with our farmers is how do we stitch together those supply sheds, find those value aligned buyers, and uh, and and it's it's a lot of work um, because agriculture is so consolidated um, and uh yeah it's uh it's it's part of the fun and part of the challenge let's see uh, wayne are you still there I think we have you know yeah i was muted oh. I, I thank you mark i muted because right outside my studio door here um, my two retrievers were wrestling and it was it was a little bit of noise I didn't want to um, have uh, about um, the overcoming no I, I was I, what I said that you didn't get was that picture so perfect because if you don't know the story it just looks like the typical commoditization elevator circumstance I have a slide that I show related to contamination, air contamination, where it's a picture of a, it's actually a sugar mill, and there are five smokestacks, and there's there's fumes coming out of three of the five, and two of them, you can just barely look at the air and see that it's got, you know, that it's just not the same as the clear sky that's behind it. So I asked the question, as you look at this picture, which one of these, these stacks is creating the most pollution? 
and everybody goes, oh, those three there with that ugly white um, smoke coming yeah. out. And I said, no, that's not right. That's, that's actually water vapor for the most part. Yeah. It's those two over there that you can't see at all. That's nitrogen oxide. That's sulfur dioxide. And visually, you can't even tell that you're, that you're having a contamination. That, as you know, for steam ecology, the worst things you ever have in water systems is what you don't smell, see, um, or, or, yeah. or somehow consume. It's, it's, it's those small quantities, and it could be pesticides yeah. or herbicides or metals or all kinds of other ugliness, and you would never know they're there. But Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to throw a, a, a hypothetical out to you because this is one that, that you're obviously working on, and, and we did have a slide up there. He didn't put it back up. Let's assume I'm a farmer who has been very traditional, and I am now changing. And I've just now, there's one thing I've really changed, and that's that, that instead of taking my um, product to a traditional elevator, like we're just describing, I am taking it to the fellow we just talked about. And, it, and not only is he doing a better service by what he's doing with it, he's also way closer. He's um, 50, you know, I only yeah. drive round trip 15 miles to him. And if I go to the main elevator, it's 30. How do I get my carbon credit? This has been confusing, I know, to carbon, to, to farmers. I'm assuming that's one of the things that Mad Ag is, is helping with. And there was a slide. Farmers need to know how can they get credit? Because um, that's, that's an area that's, again, not their expertise. So, oh, yeah. But. Yeah, um, you know, carbon credits, I mean, are, are challenging in, in and of themselves for a, a many, many reasons. And we, you know, we until recently were working really, really hard on trying to get paid, trying to get farmers paid for it. And actually, you can see on our website, you know, we, we still advertise that we're working on it. Um, but it's it's um, it's been such a challenge to. Um, to measure, report, and verify a ton of carbon in the ground, it's not cost effective. The uncertainty is really, really high, and um, the rate of accumulation is just so hard to see. You know, it's hard to build soil carbon um, in in a way that's cost effective. I mean, you could definitely, um, you know, do it pretty quick if you wanted to spend your life savings um, uh, on an acre. But um, that's not agronomically possible. So, you know, especially in the areas we work on these large, you know, staple crop farms that are traditionally just gigantic monocultures, it's just very difficult to, to, to measure the change. And so we've, we've actually put a lot of our carbon credit stuff on hold, partly because of those practical limitations. And we weren't even thinking about full life cycle analysis of, of what you were referring to, where, you know, if a farmer is now you know, selling something 50 miles from their house instead of 200, you know, what are those kinds of carbon benefits of doing that? Like, that's not even possible in the way that people are thinking about carbon markets right now. Um, and so, you know, we were just focused on, you know, regenerative practices that build soil carbon, you know, in, in, in your agricultural soils. And so it's not that it's not possible. Um, there is some great technology coming out. There's a lot of really smart people working on it. Um, I've kind of come to opinion that's actually um, more around philosophical concerns of, of monetizing soil carbon. And, and some of those concerns are as simple as, 
you know, an offset is exactly that. It, it, someone's doing bad somewhere. And by buying an offset, you're sort of doing good. And, you know, for most of these, these polluters, you know, whether it's coal or fossil fuel energy, um, like there are plenty of other things that are happening there at the, at the smoke pipe that um, we know aren't good and should not be happening. And to offset that, I think is a, is a, um, it's one step short or maybe several steps short of really dealing with the root problem that's going on, which is our reliance on fossil fuels and, and creating mechanisms that, that allow business as usual to just carry forward. Um, I also just have, you know, um, issues around further commoditizing of nature. You know, a, a ton of carbon isn't just a ton of carbon. A ton of carbon is a unique, um, is a unique feature of the ecosystem that that carbon is in. Um, a ton of carbon in a tropical rainforest is not the same as a as a wetland in Iowa. Um, but when you when you market them, um, they on the balance sheet are the same. It becomes fungible, so to speak. And and I think that that kind of economizing of nature um, hasn't done us well in the past. Um, and and I think that we can come up with more creative ways to incentivize and reward farmers um, rather than, than creating a carbon market around it. So Dina, that's, I said, a great lead in to the couple of questions that Dina's got. By the way, others of you in the audience, don't let Dina just take the whole show here. By the way, Dina, thank you so much for your questions. But you guys get creative with your fingers too and ask some others. Um, she says, um, can I pivot the regen count challenge? So she's just saying, I'm gonna take it a different direction. What if we design for a dignified, empowered farming lifestyle? How many people do you think will be rejoining farming? She then puts in parentheses homesteading, given feasible land and training. Great, I think that's a great question. Probably get lots of different kinds of answers from different people. So let's just see what Phillips gets. I think I think if the the socioeconomic conditions were favorable that you could move a family onto some land and steward it and still um, still economically thrive in the world in the sense that you know you could send a kid to college, you wouldn't have to have three or four off-farm jobs. Um, I think that there would actually be a huge um, back to the land movement um, if if there were if there was the socioeconomic and cultural conditions for that to happen. Um, there are some significant barriers to that, obviously. One is business as usual in the status quo, but another one is just land. I mean, folks that own land, um, the younger generations um, don't want to farm because of the conditions. And we have a huge succession problem on our hands here in the next two decades where, you know, land is one of the most secure investments you can make. And so the folks that are going to be owning the land in the states are either going to be international or probably private equity and hedge fund managers. Um, and that is certainly a step in the wrong direction. And I just don't see a solution right now on the table that actually um, systematically kind of uh, allows a younger generation to move back into stewardship um, at, at that kind of scale that land is owned and operated. Um, you know, I do think though that 
land in particular is is such a i mean it's such a um it's such a dark issue um we got this land you know so to speak um through colonization of the west and and moving in over over first nations individuals and members and we took it by force and deeded it out and i think that you know we're going to have a reckoning in some way or another um where we're going to have to really reimagine what land ownership um even looks like um you know i think that it's part of the kind of rugged americana individual patriotism to sort of own land private ownership it's mine put a flag in the ground and if you look at i think more enlightened um indigenous ways of stewardship it's often communally owned oriented and i think that we're going to have to really get creative about um future of land ownership and stewardship if we're going to um uh have people that have no money to buy that land or even participate in buying that land um actually um steward it and, and produce good local healthy food so it's a, it's a huge issue i do think the energy and the appetites there but the path to get there for a young family or whoever to go do that is is unclear um there are some bright spots i'll give you one bright spot um the agrarian trust is a great example of where um, people come together um, in the community, they they purchase um, a piece of ground together, and that they issue like a 99-year-long lease to a farm family to manage that land, and that 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 lease can be transferred between generations. And so you have the the um, you have the 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 sense of stability of a longer-term position on the land. Yet the the charter for the land, how it should be stewarded, is um, is is collectively designed by the community of you know investors that purchase the land. So it's a way of creating a commons, and I think that the commons um, framework could be a really interesting one that sort of breaks the traditional private land ownership and ownership by the government. It's sort of a a community-owned model, kind of like Poudre Valley Land Trust up up uh, up where Wayne lives. Highway, yep. So anyway, I think those are some kind of the exciting models of land ownership, stewardship, and tenure that are going to that are going to be required for us to get creative and and see a land that's re rejuvenated through agriculture. Yeah, and Dina, I'm going to throw in, and if you want, go back and watch a whole bunch of the webinars I've done through the years because I'm a huge believer in the latter of what, what uh, Philip was talking about in the sharing economy mode. And the whole philosophy of sharing economy is that, that you take a resource that is underutilized but overvalued and you make better use of it. There was a combine up there earlier that was shown. Um, those combines sit in, a, in, in barns for most of their years in most farming circumstances. Yep. And they're not, they're, they're highly expensive, underutilized resources. Over the long run, we're gonna have to figure out how those capital types of, of, of uh, resources get used better. So mm -hmm. a concept that we have, so this is my ranch and farm, uh, Philip, is an yep. ecological business park. So I'm in a very similar to the agrarian trust circumstance you described. I have some incredibly valuable land 
it is underutilized. I don't want to take the time, nor do I have the expertise to use it. So I provide the land. People come here and provide the expertise and the passion, and we share in the outcomes. I also provide equipment and cash yep. and a variety of other things, but that are all things that those others don't have. And we can do that all over the world, really, with any kind of resources. And Dina, that it leads to your, last, your next question, but I'm going to switch to Anthony's question here. Um, this is a great one, and, and, and we're coming close to the end. What's your timing, by the way? Because I just think maybe your answers to these, do you need to be off right at the top of the hour? Or can we go a little bit longer? I can go um, about 10 after. I have to prep for a meeting. Okay. Um, if, yeah, so I can go right. another 15 minutes. Okay, sounds good. Anthony's got a great question. What would you recommend someone should do if they have a business background and want to work in the regenerative agriculture space but don't know where to start? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to do is, is, is to figure out how to align that business background to what kind of change you want to see in the world. So do you see yourself, you know, on the farm on the day in and day out? Do you, you know, hands in the soil or do you see yourself managing livestock? Do you see yourself helping a farmer um, build a brand for more direct to market consumer? I mean, those are the, the those are the questions is where does your your background and and your reawakening and re um, calibrating or recentering with your gifts sort of leave you. Um, so the first first step is inner work, I would suggest. And then the second step is start developing a community um, around it. Find and surround yourself with like-minded people um, that are also um, putting their hearts and souls toward that direction. Um, Regen Rising, you know, is a conference that happens around here, largely online. One of the great things about the silver linings of COVID is that a lot of these in-person conferences that would cost a lot of money to attend are now all digitized and available to all. And so look for those conferences um, and attend them. And um, they, have, they have breakout rooms, you know, where you get to meet people and network. And for me, um, you know, almost all of my um, success and traction has come through trust and building great relationships. And so um, I, I would just put a put a, a, a strong emphasis on, you know, build friends in the movement and your path will unfold, no doubt. And also, I'll say this, and I, I think it's implied with what, what Philip was just saying, go intern somewhere and, yeah. and, and get your hands on if you're not sure what it is you might want to be doing. And then one of the things you're going to find, and this is going to sound a little bit negative, is farming in any way, I don't care what it is, is frankly harder work than most people ever yeah. want to admit that it is. And, yeah. and, and I'm talking both physically, emotionally, um, all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is. And, and, and it also, especially with animals, is 365, you know, 24 yeah. 7, potentially 365. And yeah. so, and a lot, until you, and so don't make some huge commitment until you're willing to go out and, and see just what it is that you, you like. Uh, and, and boy, community is huge because in that interning sort of role, you'll be in a community. By the way, I don't know of hardly any farmer who would not turn down someone showing up um, at yeah. their doorstep and saying, you know what? 
I'd love to help yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and do something. So uh, you, you won't have many people turn you down if, that, if that's the case. Nope. Which is a, leads us to a great one, and I don't think this will take the last 10 minutes, but we're going to be real firm at, at 10 after everybody. Um, Dina, this is now your kind of comment, and then it leads to a, a comment, sort of a question. So she said, just a comment about me. I've been living in a small and big city all my life, 48 years. And after following land use situation, I wonder if global urbanization trend is counterproductive for the human nature relationship. Oh, man, another great one. Yeah, my goodness. I mean, um, yes, absolutely. One of the, the gigantic um downsides of urbanization is that we lose our connection to the places that we depend on um and we we begin living more deeply in the false illusion that we are not part of nature um but you know as surely as i am breathing right now and that tree behind me you know will be breathing more in the spring you know we are the same earth the same elements and it's really easy to forget that um and yeah, I think the ur the urban trend has a has you know untied us from the earth that we have our inescapable bonds to, and and so I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And and how we start healing the relationship between the city and the country um, is I think one of the great challenges of our time. I mean, if you look at the the U.S. political landscape um much of the the fractures that define our republican and democrat party are also defined by city and country and um and we've got to do some serious work on that and for us um some of that work is is developing relationships between the cities as the large epicenters of where things are consumed um and and the country where things are you know are provided by and so how do we start putting you know more than just a farmer's face behind you know every bushel of grain sold but how do you create reciprocity because right now the the urban centers of living are um are taking a lot from the country without giving much back and we've got to figure that out so we have a program actually called restore colorado um, which is launched in partnership with a company or an organization called Zero Foodprint. And what we do is we um, work with a bunch of restauranteurs and food system businesses. They charge a 1% opt-out fee on their bill. And um, that 1% fee goes into a, a bank account, and then it becomes a fund that um, farmers can tap into to try regenerative practices that they haven't tried before. And so it's a way of the city and where all the consumption is happening to build up wealth that can then flow back into um, the hands that need it most. And um, this year we have a, the pilot project underway and there's five farmers involved in different areas, some urban farmers, some rural farmers, some you know peri-urban farmers, and they're trying um, you know, uh, they're buying compost, they're planting um, perennials, you know, things that cost quite a bit of money to do and you might not do unless you had a little bit of extra financing to do it. So 
Restore Colorado is kind of an innovative program that um, starts to kind of, I think, hope, hopefully heal that divide between this, the city and the country. Um, but you're, you're right on with that. That's a huge concern. And, um, you know, some folks, they call it the metabolic rift. You know, when the city forgets the folks that it depends on, there's a rift that forms, a metabolic rift, and um, it can have really destructive impacts um, on, on culture at large. By the way, if you, if you, Dina and others, if you feel like in your urban and you feel like you're really finding yourself getting misaligned and you're not as connected, a little thing you can do, a little, little thing, and you, anybody can do it, is find in wherever you're at somebody who's an urban forager, get in touch with them, and let them show you what's growing in the cracks of your sidewalk or in your lawn or in other places that is edible and is things that are not, things that are poisonous or that, that have other issues, things that are indigenous versus things that are um, exotic. And you will see that right in your city, you can be a little more attached to nature than you, you might have you might have thought you could be. And we need to figure out more and more ways to get that done. So, um, and, and because I think the trend that we see, and that's changed a little bit here during the pandemic, but still, and all the predictions are that something like 89% of the U.S. population will live in cities by 2050. And the dire prediction that goes along with that is that, just as, as Philip was saying earlier, so many farmers are leaving the farming um, sector and the land is getting degraded in many places. And, and I agree with you totally, Philip. We've got to learn at the, the big setting how to farm differently. Dan Brown, I think, is a great example of somebody who's doing that up in, up in North Dakota. Um, and Phil Harris at White Oak Pastures in, in Georgia. And these are huge scale farmers have dramatically changed the way that they do things and are probably being a lot more regenerative and still producing very large quantities of food uh, for the, for yeah. the population. Um, and, and they've got kids that want to continue to do what they're doing. And in Dan's case, his, his sons are taking over. Um, White Oak Pastures is a sixth generation farm. And, uh, and, and the, the next generation is coming along to, to deal with that. So anyway, four minutes left. Um, anybody's got a quick question, throw it in real quick. We're going to jump off at, at right at. This has been awesome, Philip. Um, you and I, I hope, will really get to connect more and, and talk about a number of these things. And uh, you're certainly welcome to come up here to, to my place, bring those kids. Yeah. Um, I have um, 22 ponds, and one of them um, has um, uh, 11,000 smallmouth bass in it. And you're going, how does he know 11,000? Well, we survey them every December and um, using electroshocking, which is something that you probably know of. And, and we actually yep. make that a party, and we harvest about 3,000 of them for 50 or 60 chefs. Um, in the region, and they, they <laughs> buy them that day, and they usually have one meal that they'll cook with smallmouth bass for, for whoever their clients are. And uh, anyway, we're six ounces away from the state record smallmouth bass in that pond, but yet 
there are huge numbers of fish that are two pounds, three pounds. By the way, the state record six pounds, three ounces. So we're five pounds, 13 <laughs> ounces is one that's been caught out of there. But, but it's a real fun place um, and real close. So please know that we'd love to have you come out sometime. And um, yeah. And I don't see awesome. any other questions. And we got just a couple minutes. Last thoughts from you. How should people get a hold of you or read a few at school, maybe find a contact page? If yeah. Somebody wants to yeah. get. If you want to, if you want to connect, uh, it's connect at madagriculture.org. Um, and uh, that's the easiest way. We also have a newsletter you could sign up for. Um, we also. Um, uh, twice a year publish um, some journals which you can find for free digitally at the top of our website um, under story um, there are some free digital journals and then there's some hardbacks so there, those are just some ways to stay in touch um, you know it's uh thanks so much for having me on um, it's a, it's exciting to see the the community of of conscious uh, people that you've built through your podcast and uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting to connect with more people and, and share in the journey. For me, I feel like it's, you know, there's this sort of uh, beautiful insurrection that's that's happening. People frustrated with, you know, the industrial agro industrial chemical complex and and frustrated with the way that our lives and the land has been treated. And and we're all making steps in the right direction, whether it's with, the, you know, with what we eat or, or what we're doing with farmers or. Um, discussing economics or there's everyone has a part to play and so um, you know I would just encourage everyone to to really um, you know figure out how to use their gifts you know and and figure out how to use those gifts in service of humanity and and the earth and uh, I'm confident that we'll move forward together into a more beautiful just future awesome well we are right there at 10 after Philip, thank you. Mark and Areed, thank you for what you guys always do. Audience, thank you. Questions were great. Um, our replay of this will be posted about two days from now on the site. And Philip, by the way, unless they've already told you, we'll, we'll talk about you. That's yours also. You can cool. take it and use it any way you'd like to uh, in the future. But um, again, amazing. Didn't even get to tell you about a guy that spent did online stuff with Malawi. So he's working in the rainforest, Michael Cooley, who we interviewed last Friday. So I'll connect the that's two of you. I think there's some cool things. Yeah, that'd be great. So I love it. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Have a great rest of your day, wherever you're at in the world. Mark, take us out. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.